Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Feminist Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy McMurtry. This show was produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders both past and present of these lands, as well as those you are hearing us from today. In this episode of Women on the Line, You'll be hearing from several women and gender non-conforming people about their experiences of connection and disconnection during this current COVID-19 pandemic crisis. We start with Polly Bennett, thanks to Esther Zhu who, who did this interview with Polly, looking at ideas of surviving this period of time. Polly has been a social justice activist in a range of campaigns for nearly 30 years. Polly is a researcher in social sciences, mainly in the community sector, a tutor and academic in the university sector. Under the guidance of her doctor, Polly has been in strict home isolation since early March. In this first excerpt, Polly talks about the importance of creating networks of support, as particularly as somebody living alone. And she speaks about the histories of mutual aid that she drew from. Not long after I was in isolation, there were a lot of mutual aid groups and local community support groups that formed. So there's ones around um, rent difficulties and calling for a rent strike or a mortgage strike. There were runs around just providing community support for each other, which could be anything from like delivering some toilet paper to um, getting prescriptions for people or even just having a chat on the phone for some people who are alone at home, like I am, I live solo. Um, Mm. And I, yeah, so I did a lot of that connecting. I set up a neighbours group as well. So I just hand wrote out some little notices and then I messaged one of my other neighbours to see if they could help. Basically just to see if we needed support for each other. Um, So far it's only been me that's needed the support. But I did know there was like basically a single mum in one of the apartments and there's some elderly couple, there's an elderly couple and there are other kids in the apartment. So I knew that at some point someone might need help. So I think two thirds of the block are now in like a phone list um, and we text each other now and then just to check we're okay and also any vital information. So is this, like you just mentioned, the mutual aid support group, is this mainly in like Melbourne, Australia, or they are kind of internationally? They're international. I mean, there's, there's whole traditions. I mean, it actually comes from kind of radical activist and even anarchist traditions. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you look through history. I mean, they, these aren't new groups. There's entire traditions, like more than 100 years old, of doing this kind of thing, like during conflicts during famines during um war periods during depression yeah i mean the the examples are endless um social movements around civil rights for example in the united states a lot of those organizations had effectively a mutual aid group so it might be 
feeding school kids in the mornings or lunch times, or it might be, mm. um, yeah, helping people with shopping. And it's literally, it's that kind of care work that, but at a community level that we often take for granted until there's a period of a crisis. And then suddenly when our, you know, our formal state run social systems are kind of not coping and not supporting us, um, then these groups pop up and they flourish. And it means that we can provide direct support to each other rather than through the state. Um, so it's also got many really interesting kind of radical potentials as well, because it means that we are connecting as a community initially through aid, but then it might be, for example, it might be helping people out with paying rent, but then it might become, hey, why don't we collectively organise a strike and refuse to pay rent because none of us can afford it. During that period, I also became aware that I have lots of privileges and things that I can share. Like I've got very good internet. I've still got work. I can, um, so someone who's also an asthmatic in one of the mutual aid groups was like, I can't afford to get my script tomorrow and I'm really worried about it running out. So I just sent money to them. And then they ended up not needing all of the money I gave them. So then they forwarded it to friends of theirs. So yeah, that's how it kind of works. move now to a very different pace. Jess Gerard is a senior lecturer in education, focusing on research of the changing formations and lived experiences of social inequalities in relation to education, activism, work and unemployment. Jess is isolating with her partner and co-parent and their toddler. Jess used this invitation to reflect on the ways in which the manifestations of restriction during COVID-19 highlights the social inequities in our society. This is called Wasting a Crisis. The invitation to write this comes as cathartic relief. I hear people say it's important not to waste a crisis, that this is an opportunity to think differently about schools, education, life. My fingers hover tentatively over the keyboard. I'm wedged next to my bed in the one slither of space available for a desk, a hall table, in my home office. The transformed desk is now a hot desk as my pregnant partner and I enact our tightly orchestrated schedule of working from home and parenting our toddler. I think of us as living in the slipstreams, or maybe we're ships anchored side by side but somehow also constantly moving each dutifully fulfilling our two-hour blocks of parenting while the other works, continuing this relay pattern from morning into the night and into the next day and night and day. A flittering half-thought is wrenched from recognition by the sound of my toddler giggling. I hear the familiar negotiation of putting on shoes to go for a walk. I wait in anticipation for the sound of silence. My experience is not extraordinary, Countless parents are performing new versions of work-life balance in which the time-space boundaries between parenting, working and education fundamentally collapse. As children lurk on the edges of online meetings and online meetings lurk on the edges of potty time, dinner time, any time. COVID-19 reveals much about labour and capitalism and its relation to families, children and education. 
how it ultimately rests upon unpaid gendered labour of parents and how the extraction of value seeps from the production of life itself to the production of commodities, including educational institutions. It also underscores foundational global connectivities and their inequalities of capital and labour, yes, but also of the air we breathe, surfaces we touch and medical care available. These are not new revelations, but they are acutely felt as governments weigh up lives and economies. Yet the penultimate arrival of the Home Office is decidedly a more middle-class experience of COVID-19. Jobs that can't be done from home are still being carried out, Clearly essential for our existence, many are poorly paid. Shop assistants, nurses, care workers, garbage collectors, cleaners. Other workers lost altogether. Livelihoods and life worlds radically transformed as the global numbers of the unemployed grow. In this context, the nation state's concern around schooling and economic growth intertwine. Educational performance and outcomes are ex our anxieties that underlie nations and COVID-19 has ripped open their seam to reveal their performativity. As politicians scramble to maintain economic growth, schools function as enablers of parental employment is laid bare. As work, home, education boundaries seemingly crumble, others are fortified. National borders close and homes are presented as unproblematic, self-sufficient islands complete with work and school capacities. If anything, COVID-19 has deepened the border grooves of colonial capitalism in which the white nuclear family sits at the centre of the nation-state's public life. In this framing, home is improperly presumed to be safe and familial and social forms outside of nuclear conventions slip from view. So-called non-citizens, temporary visa holders, students, workers, neighbours, friends are denied welfare rights and protections as the rivets of the borders are screwed tighter. Just two kilometres from where I sit, over 60 asylum seekers are locked in crowded conditions, in forced mandatory detention, unable to carry out physical distancing and worried for their safety and lives. Undoubtedly to return to before is just to slide into seemingly more comfortable expressions of these border grooves. But what does it mean to not waste a crisis? I'm more concerned about people wasting away in the crisis and its aftermath. It is a struggle for survival and justice and it demands that any educational futures fundamentally address the questions of life itself and its abounding social inequalities and divisions. Women on the Line And right around Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line. We've been hearing from women and gender non-conforming people speak to experiences of connection and disconnection during the COVID-19 pandemic. This piece by Amy Sue so beautifully sums up the deep despair that so many of us have felt during this period of social isolation. Amy Sue is a community development practitioner and works in the self-advocacy movement in Melbourne. She believes sharing our experiences makes communities and individuals stronger. This piece comes with a content warning for language. Living alone. I wake with a frazzled mind. I can't work. I will work. One, two, three. I compel my limbs to do what ordinary humans do, get out of bed. What is it about this shut-in that reduces me so? A friend names it. Social isolation mimics severe depression. Hi, it's been a while. Repeated boredom, endless time, stuck in your head. 
no audience fuck washing your hair. I remind my mind I'm not depressed, unemployed or alone. I'm just securing other safety, working from home and loved by many. Sheridan Byrne is a queer, cis woman living solo and working as a queer birth educator and ally. She is also an educator within the alcohol and other drugs and family violence sectors. Sheridan sees her role in the community as an advocate in educating others to navigate systems of power. This small piece is a personal voice memo Sheridan shared with me that she'd sent to a friend as part of their communication ritual during the pandemic isolation. Each person, sporadically as they are drawn to, sends a message to the other, offering a moment of connection between themselves and each other. This personal account of a moment in time in Sheridan's life is demonstrative of the ways our bodies hold both the complexities and possibilities of this time. Good morning, good morning. Just doing a check-in. I'm feeling so much healthier in myself. And I did yoga this morning, so I'm just so grateful for all of the adaptability and flexibility that people are showing. And I got to do yoga online with a friend from choir, and we start choir back on Monday night. So there's these things now that I feel like we've all had our L plates on for a while, how to do this, and now... I'm feeling a little bit more secure in this new world, so feeling a lot lighter and a lot kind of healthier, more connected in myself. And I'm so, uh, so grateful that the sun is shining and I get to be in this little space and do what I want in it and look out and see trees and look across the road and see park and trees and people jogging and children playing and just yeah that that sense of like I have everything I need right now I think during the week I got scared and I went into that dark place and I feel like I had to just just spend time like with myself just moving through what that was so to feel like in my body having done some stretching some yoga I feel so much stronger in my body I'm just confident in my body that no matter what happens, no matter what what viruses come across my path, my body is still strong. So I'm feeling good about that and that I have ways to really take care of my immunity and knowing and just trusting. I think just trusting in my body, again, feels really good. And I think like just knowing I can stay in that place. I hope you're good. I'm I'm gonna talk to you soon, but I thought I'd just touch base this morning. It's Saturday morning, so I will talk to you soon. I love you and I hope you're feeling good too. Women on the line. We now return to Polly, who speaks eloquently about the ways in which for some connections to self and home are compromised by the uncaring expectations of labour forces coming into our homes. A friend of mine wrote this really interesting piece today, which was really talking about um, that stuff of how, you know, the difficulties with work having effectively invaded our homes 
and how we handle that. And particularly for her, she's a parent, um, single parent, um, two young, well, one very young kid and one um, teen. And she's also got chronic health issues, same as me. And she's also works in the university sector. So having those conversations about how do we manage care at caregiving, um, care receiving, care sharing in an environment where suddenly this home, which maybe for some people, I mean, I understand that for some people, their home is not a place of refuge, but for some of us, our homes are a place of refuge mm-hmm. and care and love. But now suddenly we've got these demands coming into these um, spaces you must work efficiently and you must wash your hair before you talk to your students online and you must um, insist on your kids never interrupting you while you're trying yeah. to teach and um, you can't have your pets jumping on you. How should we respond in a way that's both caring to us, caring to the people we're trying to provide services to and pushing back at some people in society who just don't get that circumstances have changed and we all need to adjust in a kind of loving and caring way and so my work I mean even though I you know I love teaching and lecturing I think and because it's partly connected to that sense of sharing knowledge and helping students to learn um but in terms of the paid work of tutoring and lecturing well I don't know it's you know as long as I've got home food and I'm comfortable and I've got clothing and the kind of basics, I don't really care what the demands of the higher levels of the university are, frankly. I care about my students who are trying to join an online tutorial in a really crowded, noisy environment, which means they can't switch their mic on. Mm -hmm. Um, I really care about the students who are now caring for sick family and friends who are also trying to do assessment. I really care about my colleagues Um, for example, in IT yesterday, who were all let go despite working a month of busting their gut to help tutors and lecturers like me and students to move online. They're the people I care about. I don't care. I don't care about some university dictate that says that I have to wear particular clothes while I'm being online. I know. Or dress in a particular way. It's really un- it's unloving and it's and it's uncaring and we need the opposite of that right now some days it's overwhelming and that's okay um but also yeah well maybe i'll finish with that saying and again i can't exactly remember where it came from i think it might have been um someone in the resistance or maybe even um a member of the Jewish community who was in concentration camps in Germany in the 19, yeah, in the early 20th century. But it's that saying that whenever there is crisis or difficulty, always look to the helpers. (laughs) Because they're always there. Yeah. And Um, do you believe actually, even during now the, the, the shutdown, do you believe like the human connection is even stronger? I think it is. I think um, I think it is, but I think it's, it's still really, we have some very serious barriers to that human connection. And I don't think we should just deny that they exist. Um, oh. They're very serious structural barriers. So for example, all of those people who will not get any 
they do not have access to Medicare or healthcare at the moment, even in this country. Yeah. Um, they don't have access to any kind of financial assistance or assistance or housing. There are some of um, the federal government's decisions and some of the state governments in particular, very heavy policing targets particular communities, particularly Indigenous communities. Yes. And so I think the drive to human connection is as strong as it's ever been. But I also think we need to acknowledge that there are some very real barriers to that that we also need to pay attention to yeah. um, and not just... Um, yeah, not not see, basically. I mean, I'm in a very privileged position where I'm not a member of a um, community that's particularly targeted by the police. Um, but I know some of my friends are and some of their experiences have been horrible. I don't, I think there's both. It's both. It's um, when we connect with each other at kind of grassroots and community level, I think that sense of connection is incredibly strong and powerful. Yeah. And that we're going to really need that to challenge some of the wider social issues of, um, yeah, very full on state um, policing, um, racism, family violence for some who are facing that at the moment, um, being stuck at home, that's even more intense. People's lack of access to financial assistance. I mean, it's just, it's, it's terrible that we're in the year 2020 and we call ourselves a civilised world and yet so many can't even get the basics and they're very real issues and they need, they need both human connection but also, I think, human connection to push back and change some social structures that are fundamentally flawed as well. The final piece, looking at both connection and disconnection, we turn to a powerful piece by Sarah C. Motta. Sarah is a mestiza sobreviviente whose wounding and healing are deeply entangled in the histories of exile and loss, survival, resilience and joy of her Colombia, Chivcha, Muisca, Indigenous, Polish, Jewish and Celtic lineages. She is a mother, storyteller, poet, activist, political theorist and popular educator who convenes the politics discipline at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales. Sarah submitted this written piece, I Teach My Children. This piece comes as a stark reminder of the barriers to meaningful connection of the systemic racist violence perpetrated against people of colour around the globe. Women on the line stand in solidarity with those struggling for justice in the Black Lives Matter protests around the world. So much up for me at the moment. My body feels like it's falling apart. And it's very hard to do anything other than pray, plan with my ancestors and sisters and brothers for healing, justice and liberation and write what little I can muster and that helps speak some of this pain. I teach my children. I teach my children to trust their beating hearts. I teach my children to look for the other black kid in the class. I teach my children to know when to speak and when to keep quiet. I teach my children that when we are stopped and questioned to stay calm, hold it in. 
I teach my children our mother tongue so we might hablar en secreto cuando hay gente mirándonos con los ojos llenos de odio. I teach my children our histories and songs. I teach my children when they are marked down and ignored for this in school to trust their beating hearts. I teach my children the rules of engagement with white institutions to stay calm, hold it in. I teach my children to feel the ancestors walk beside them. I teach my children how and why it can be scary in the daytime too. I teach my children it is not their fault when the bus doesn't stop for them, the teacher ignores them, the security guard checks our bag again and again and again. I teach my children why our experience makes no sense to peers and teachers and other supposed guides. I teach my children to allow the grief amongst us where it is safe, but not too loud so the neighbour doesn't call facts or the cops. I teach my children that their anger is righteous. I teach my children to know their names and not feel afraid to correct others for a name has power. I teach my children what I know about death and life. I teach my children to recognize the lies. I teach my children as much as I damn can to not internalize those lies. I teach my children to find their anchor amongst the pain. I teach my children to feel into the immenseness of their power despite what they say. But what do I teach my children when of a night I cannot sleep and pace, knowing they have her, knowing she is unwell, praying she is not the next Ms. Do? What do I teach my children when the call comes that they beat her up late at night, no one looking as she hid so as not to be wrecked again? What do I teach my children of the loss of their Auntie Karen, head smashed to the floor by riot cops, dead alone at 39? What do I teach my children when hermanas recount otra perdida de otra compañera arrastrada desde su cama a su muerte? What do I teach my children then? Sarah C. Motta, dedicated with all power to the sisters and brothers murdered, abused and denigrated by the cops and white institutions. produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to hear this show again, or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. The new theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Amy McMurtry. Thanks for tuning in to the show.